they say, oh, well, you need a contract. We need a contract to get rid of the legal rights of the person who's donating the eggs. And then the two sisters come in and say, we love each other. We don't need a contract. Your consents are enough. And doctor is like, okay, that's fine. You don't want a contract. You don't have to have a contract. But that's a really bad idea. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the show, I'm joined by attorney Melissa Brisman. Ms. Brisman graduated valedictorian from Wharton School of Business at UPenn. She started helping couples in the field of art in 1996, and she has been her own client. She's had twin boys through a gestational carrier and a daughter through a gestational carrier. She has advised governments such as Taiwan in drafting surrogacy legislation. She's been a keynote speaker at a number of different institutions, including ASRM. She has sat on the board of a number of organizations, including the American Fertility Association, Path to Parenthood, Fertile Dreams, Conceive Magazine, and others. In 2017, she was the Advocacy Award recipient from Path to Parenthood, and she is the sole owner of her law firm, Melissa B. Brisman Esquire, that handles reproductive law and surrogate fund management, a company that manages escrow in connection with reproductive arrangements. Melissa Brisman, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. There's a whole bunch of things we can talk about, including what's happened in New York recently. I guess I wanted to start with part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is just because I remember my first ASRM. It was probably four years ago. There was one of the attorneys was speaking and you could just look around and see every doctor and practice owner in the audience was just petrified with fear of all of the things that can can go wrong with third party law. And and it's just, I think, a really scary space for a lot of people. So maybe we could start broad and you could just explain some of what third party law involves and what you very often find that you're educating providers on. Sure, absolutely. Well, the biggest problem for doctors is that the law really hasn't caught up with the technology. So for instance, 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't take an egg out of one person, fertilize it with sperm and put it into another person so that people were carrying DNA of an egg of somebody that was not their own. So all of these things evolved very quickly. We had been doing it in animals for a long time, but not in humans. And the laws in many of the states did not keep up. And because you're creating human life, the potential for embryo mix-ups, psychological issues, all of those things have not really caught up with the law. And doctors are not very good about two things. Number one, in general, they hate lawyers, right? Because Even more than they hate marketers? Yeah, (laughs) well, probably equal. But they really hate lawyers because lawyers have a reputation of being ambulance chasers in the medical field and suing them for malpractice. 
So they don't really realize there's also a side of lawyers who are very helpful to them that prevent misunderstandings and keep them out of the equation. So they're hesitant to, to look to lawyers. And the other thing is that doctors want to help. So when a patient comes to them, they want to do what the patient wants, even if that might not be in the patient's best interests over the long haul. So they're really bad at saying no. So that's a problem also. So what does that mean? So for instance, in third-party reproductive practice, doctors have what's called informed consent, right? So let's just start with egg donation, okay? So you have somebody who needs an egg and they have them sign informed consent and they decide that they're gonna use their younger sister to be their egg donor, right? Because their younger sister looks like them, she wants to help and they have been to ASRM and they say, oh, well, you need a contract. We need a contract to get rid of the legal rights of the person who's donating the eggs. And then the two sisters come in and say, we love each other. We don't need a contract. Your consents are enough. And doctor is like, okay, that's fine. You don't want a contract. You don't have to have a contract. But that's a really bad idea. How often that's does that really, happen? That happens a lot, a lot more than you would realize. Because what will happen is this client or patient has been a patient of the practice for 10 years, let's say. So she came in when she was 26 and they started with artificial insemination. She didn't get pregnant. Then they maybe gave her some Clomid and then they maybe gave her some shots and then they maybe did some IVF and we're at, you know, and then maybe she lost a bit, couple of babies. And then we finally realized, okay, it's time to switch to egg donation and we're 10 years out. She's 36 years old. So this patient has spent a hundred grand, 200 grand on treatments. And now the doctor is telling her she needs to spend a thousand bucks on legal and she doesn't want to. I've spent $200,000. This is a waste of money. I love my sister. And so the doctor feels bad, right? And the doctor says, fine, you don't need a contract. Okay. You don't need a psych exam on your sister. But then what happens when the sister donates her eggs and she feels like those are her babies? And maybe there's not a lawsuit, but she comes back to the doctor and she says, I really wish you had given me that psychological exam because I don't think I should have done that. this. I feel like those are my babies and I was coerced by my family and made to feel like I should do this. And then there's no psych and no contract and just a consent. And who's going to be liable for that? The doctor, right? And what's the emotional or what if there's a litigation regarding parental rights of the child because there's no law in i don't know nebraska let's say they are on who's the mother when someone else carries your egg and this is now most of these things don't go to trial so a lot of them are settled out of court so we don't know but the big problem is that the doctor didn't have a contract so there's no legal rights between the sister and the eggs. And then the psychological wasn't there. So there was no ability to see if she was prepared for the fact that she might feel like these were her kids. So you really want to make sure that you have the best legal advice. And honestly, when you're talking that an egg donation cycle averages twenty to $30,000, or if you're not paying the donor, maybe $15,000, and you're talking about $1,000 of legal services, is it really worth the risk or $500 worth of psych services? So Lawyers are not are good at also doing things that doctors don't like, which is breaking up deals that shouldn't be happening, right? So if I'm doing a contract and I'm representing the sister and the sister comes to me and says, 
my mom told me that I have to donate eggs to my sister, that this is family and we do everything for family. But, you know, my husband doesn't want me to. He feels like our kids will be confused if there are half genetic siblings out there. And I love my husband and I don't know what to do because I don't want to risk my marriage. But this is my mother. And then I will tell the psych person she's not qualified to be an egg donor. Right. Because this is not a good situation. And so I will be breaking up the deal. I will be the bad guy. And then lawyers will think, oh, you know, Melissa Brisbane's a bad attorney because she's breaking up our deals. The doctors will think that you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And the patient too, right? The patients that's receiving the eggs will say, my sister wanted to do it. And then she went to the lawyer and they scared her. Just like you said at ASRM, everyone is with these wide eyes. Yeah. Right? Now, most of the arrangements don't break up, but the ones that do break up are the ones that maybe should have broken up. Right. Right. And the the psychologists and the lawyers are the ones who point that out. And so how much contact does the attorney have with the patient at this point? Is the attorney talking through the mental health professional is are they do they have an interview with the patient themselves? How how are how are you coming to a conclusion of this is high risk and the deal should be broken up? So if you're talking about a seasoned reproductive lawyer, they're going to have contact with the mental health professional, but not everybody will and not all the time. So the contact may just be, for instance, let's say I'm representing an egg donor. I always want the husband to come in also, the egg donor's husband, because I want to make sure that he's on board, right? Because presumably they're going to have genetic kids together and that's going to affect their family unit as well, right? So I want them both to come in and I want clearance from the mental health professional. I want to know they went to the mental health professional and the mental health professional thinks this is a good idea. I don't need to know what went on there, right? I don't need to have access to their HIPAA forms. I just need to know it took place, the visits for the intended parents and the donor and the partners and everybody the, the social worker psychologist thought it was a good idea to move forward. Now, if there are problems that we want to discuss, then I might get a HIPAA form and say, look, this donor doesn't seem psychologically prepared to me. I want to get a professional because that's, I've been doing this 21 years. So sometimes I can get a feeling that a donor is not psychologically prepared. And then I can go over that, but I have to get a HIPAA form to do that. The donor is going to have to consent to me talking to the mental health professional or to the doctor about this. And I may share my concerns with the donor as well, right? So, and there's certain people I won't represent. So let's just say we're having a gestational surrogacy arrangement and I'm representing intended parents. So this is another scenario. And they tell me they want to use their sister who has never given birth before. Okay. Another bad idea to have somebody who hasn't given birth serve as a, as a gestational surrogate. I won't do the arrangement because it's too high risk. So even though there's legally no reason I can't do it, I won't do it. If I think it's too high risk, I won't do it. And so then who ultimately, uh, that's, that would be the attorney's decision in if they're going to you know, represent, but ultimately who decides if the deal is broken up? Is it the mental health professional's call? Is it still just a recommendation to the physician? At the end of the day, who makes the ultimate call that 
we can't do this. Well, normally in a practice, it depends how the like most established practices will not overrule their mental health professional, but recommendation. And it just depends how strong the recommendation is. Right. So if you have a donor take her psychological exam, which is two parts, it's an interview and usually it's a test. Okay. A multi-phasic personality test, some either what's called the PAI or MMPI. These are various personality tests, right? So if somebody fills out the personality test and they have some borderline maybe issues, then coupled with the interview that there may be, you know, some caution, right? But let's just say they take the personality test and they test as a schizophrenic manic depressive with bipolar tendencies, right? That's like somebody who has severe mental health issues. We're not going to, I mean, no practice is going to go forward, right? Because testing for all those mental health issues is nearly impossible unless you're not reading the, mm-hmm. right? So it ultimately, it's usually the doctor's decision. Like they can find another lawyer if I recommend them against proceeding forward. However, most practices that are really, really tight on their legal and psychological, if the contract isn't signed, they're not going to go forward. So if the donor doesn't sign the contract, then the deal is, or the procedure won't happen, right? So if the donor backs out herself. How customized do each of these contracts need to be? Are they very different contracts in almost seemingly similar situations it's not legal zoom where you can get an employment agreement and then just add or change a few clauses how often can practices sort of revisit a template of a contract and then how often does this look like something that's very different from a case that on face value seems very similar well templates get revised all the time i'll i'll tell you the most pressing interesting issue that's come up in the last six months in which we have been revising all our contracts. And this is huge for the reproductive area, which is DNA testing. Companies at home genetic testing like 23andMe or other companies, right? So you have a donor, right? And part of the agreement is who is going to be aware that this child is made from an egg donor, right? So let's say the sister again is donating to her sister. Is the whole family going to know? So Let's just say this child at some point registers as an open donor on an at-home genetic testing service like 23andMe, right? Then let's just say the egg donor as well also registers. That's going to show up that that's her biological parent. Parent isn't really the right word, but that's going to be the person who's biologically considered her mother, right? Mm -hmm. So these 23andMe, like anonymous egg donors that have contracts through agencies is a big thing that gets revised now in every, so it's going to look different in every contract because I'll give you an example. So let's just say donor never registers on 23andMe or at-home genetic tests because in the contract, she agreed to never do that, right? And let's just say that the child never registers either. So I'm going to give you a real example, but the donor's sister registers, okay, and then starts finding out all the people who might be linked to her. And then 
someday those people find each other on Facebook. It doesn't have to be, it could be a relative once removed that registers. So I have a child who was born from, not a child, 42 years old, born from a sperm donor, right? So she wanted to find out who her sperm donor daddy was. So she bought an at-home genetic test, registered, and the bio dad or the sperm donor was not on there, but all his siblings were on there. Okay. So you following this? So the, the child of a sperm donor goes on, finds out that the, the siblings are on there. So she contacts the siblings. The siblings are like, we never donated sperm. Maybe it's our other brother. So then she finds the other brother, but he's not on social media. He's older. He's 65. So then she goes onto social media and finds that this man has children. Okay. So his children don't know that he donated sperm when he was in medical school. So he's got three kids and she friends them on Facebook. So all of a sudden, these three children are getting friend requests from some random woman who's claiming to be genetically their siblings, half siblings. So these are all in the contracts. And this is a huge. So as far as changing the agreements, they change all the time. This is why we don't want people pulling them off the Internet. But they are sort of a template, right? Because you have to start somewhere. Are you going to allow 23andMe? Are you going to allow meeting the donor? Are you going to allow telling people? There are certain things that are going to be similar in every agreement, but people are going to have differing in opinions. And the biggest thing in, let's say, egg donation or sperm donation right now is that I believe there will be no way to be in any way anonymous soon. DNA has become something that you could test everywhere. So if you are going, are you feeling ashamed or you're not coming to grips yet with that it's not your DNA, I want you to examine that psychologically because someday this child will know, which is way different than when I started 20 years ago, right? When people were okay with not telling people and there was no such thing as going to CVS and paying 50 bucks and finding out, you know, all these things. I'm not a big fan of at-home DNA though. Also, it has a lot of legal ramifications. So, for instance, if you do an at-home DNA test and you drink a soda and you leave it at a bar where someone was killed and they take your soda, you are now in the database for witnesses. So, as a lawyer, that's one thing that I, I don't think people should be doing. But but it does really hit home the point that I think there's still a lot of programs that are talking about anonymous donors or still talking with donors as though anonymity is still tenable. And I've had been having this conversation recently, and you really just expounded it, which is that with all of this DNA available, the DNA is the identity. And it's easily traceable in so many ways. You just gave an example of someone who's not a private investigator, who through a few at-home tests and social media was able to narrow down who her biological father was, who the sperm donor was. Are you seeing a lag in the language that practices are using when they're talking about topics with these, both with intended parents and donors? Yes. One of the things practices do is they write their consent forms when they opened in 1970 and they don't revise them. And that's a bad idea. I mean, they need to have 
They have their own egg donation program, their own sperm donation program, embryo donation. They need the donors to know about these at-home genetic tests and the recipients to know that this can cause an issue and that they cannot be held responsible if people use these at-home genetic tests to find each other, right? The biggest thing that physicians are not used to is they just think that they just practice medicine, right? So third-party reproduction is a village, right? It's not just practicing medicine. It's knowledge of psychology. It's knowledge of the law. There needs to be a third-party team that has all of these people on the team making sure that everything is okay. And to be honest, more important than me for the long term, I mean, the lawyer is important to save the doctor malpractice money, and that's huge, right? Because they keep getting sued. They can't be in business. But the psychologist is protecting the future and their expectations, And that's really important also because the doctor just wants to help the patient. And I had a client whose sister donated to their sister and to know them because I knew them outside of my practice. They came to me, but I knew them outside of my practice. And the one sister did not talk to the other sister for five years. And when I asked her why, she said that psychologically she was unprepared for the feelings she would have when she saw the children that her sister gave birth to. So, and I said, didn't the psychologist bring this up? And she said, no. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's, and it wasn't that she didn't love her sister. She said she couldn't be at family gatherings because she knew she promised her sister that those were her kids, but she felt like they were hers. And that's not a good donor, right? We don't want to harm anybody by practicing medicine. So these are things that practices need to be aware of. How often are you finding that practices have these third-party teams in place? If you had to ballpark, what's the percentage of ones that do and don't? Okay, so most do not have these big third-party teams, believe it or not. So if you go to SART, you know, the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, you want to go to a program that does a lot of egg donation or does a lot of gestational surrogacy. So yes, if you're in California or New York, there's gonna be third party teams, right? Where most of the population is. But if you're going to the middle of America, so you're going to Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, like mid middle of the country, and maybe they're not doing that many egg donation cycles per year, Right. So instead of like 500 or a thousand, like a huge clinic is doing, they're doing 10. They're not investing in the money for a third party team because they don't really need it. So that's where you're going to get the most mistakes. And but you're also going to find that people are more laid back in those places overall. So it's going to be a combination of lack of knowledge and just the personality of the state. Right. Like if you're have a New York City wealthy couple, they may behave differently than a high school graduate who's really just calm and laid back and lives, you know, on Alabama time. Are you saying that one is more litigious than the other? Yes. That may well be the case, but I would never want to rest on that thinking, oh, you know, people here, they'll never sue anybody because No, I don't think that's a good idea, but I'm saying that's the way the world is operating, right? They're thinking, oh, people don't do that around this. And honestly, in the smaller practices, one huge lawsuit can kill them, right? 
the bigger practices probably, even though they don't want it, they they are. They've already been sued a dozen times in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the cost of doing business. <laughs> yes, and and a lot of the cost of doing business, honestly, is expectation, right? So I had a case a very long time ago that involved a person who did sperm sorting, not PG testing that you can do now for sex selection. You used to be able to do sperm sorting, okay? And they were told how accurate it was, but they got the wrong sex through the sperm sorting, so they sued, right? Uh, the case did settle out, but the consent form was not clear enough about how likely or unlikely it was to work. And that is an important, right? Informed consent. You don't want the patient to have expectations that are different than what you can provide. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. So what do you recommend for these practices that are in the interior of the country or at least in small markets that maybe just do a couple dozen third party cycles each year? What do you recommend? How do you, you know, they're not going to have in-house counsel and they're probably, they're not going to have in-house mental health professional either. How do you recommend that they retain a team that's both effective, but also makes cost sense? So they need to understand first the difference between a consent and a contract. The practice has to have their own consents and they would be wise, even if they're small, to invest in a lawyer in their state. Every state has a reproductive attorney. There is a society for reproductive attorneys. There's probably three or 400 members. I'm a member. You can go online. It's called ARDA and you can, it's like the Academy of Assisted Reproductive Technology Attorneys and you can look up who's in your state. These are all people who have done more than 50 cases of each surrogacy and egg donation. And you have, there's a big vetting process to get in the organization. 
And you want to make sure that someone has written good consents for your third party. That's important. That comply with state law, which is why you want someone in your state as well. In addition to that, you want to understand the difference between what is a consent and a contract, right? So a lot of doctors don't understand this difference. In all third-party arrangements, there needs to be a contract between the parties, even if it's anonymous and they don't know who the donor is, they're still signing a contract in counterparts. So a consent is, I'm consenting to you, the physician, to perform this procedure, and these are the risks. A contract is between two parties. So if these smaller programs are not requiring the egg donor or the recipients to get legal advice about proceeding forward, if there is a lawsuit, they're 100% going to be brought in, right? Because there was only a consent on file. There's no contract between the parties. But if there is a separate contract between the egg donor and the recipient and they have a fight or a disagreement, it is possible that the clinic may not even be in the suit because what they're arguing about is the contract between the parties that the clinic is not a party to. So that's going to lessen the burden if they agreed outside of the clinic on the contract. And the second is, especially if you don't have qualified mental health people on staff, is you send them to somebody outside, right? Send them to a private practice to get screened, somebody who does this all the time. So there's always somebody in the state who can do it. Now, certain states are going to have people that they might have to drive. So for instance, if you come to New York area, there's going to be a psychologist, you know, within two miles, right? Because Manhattan is what, seven, eight miles long? And there's plenty of psychologists. If you go to Idaho, yes, you might have a two-hour drive to get to a good psychologist that you're going to have to go to one or two times. But, you know, that is the cost of the process. That's important. So you do want them to go in person to the mental health professional and understand what they're getting themselves into. So, and it's not unusual in these huge states that have a lot of land for people to drive. So someone in Idaho is going to be used to maybe having a two-hour trip to go to a professional as opposed to somebody in another area of the country. So how are states now changing and adapting laws? The most recent, some of the most recent developments have happened in New York. At the time of recording, we're talking just after New York State has included IVF insurance coverage in their budget. Is there third-party regulations or rules in this legislation as well? And how are states adapting as they start to introduce more legislation? So states are becoming cognizant of these issues. And like just in the last two years, there have been about seven new laws that have been enacted regarding egg donation and gestational surrogacy. All of those laws have been positive, but some of them have had things that don't necessarily make sense in the reproductive law world because politics sometimes doesn't necessarily reflect practice. So Washington State has a new positive law. Maine has one, Washington, D.C. I think there's one proposed in Maryland. There's one proposed in New York. It hasn't passed yet. So these are hard-fought battles usually because a lot of times they go on party lines. And in general, Republicans don't like reproductive technologies because that fits in line with their abortion stance. So they don't like creation outside the womb, which is in the reproductive health arena, which is abortion, which they're against. And sometimes they don't understand. Um, Most of the time though, these laws clarify certain things, but also sometimes they lack 
understanding. So it's a learning process. So for instance, the law in New York for a gestational carrier, which is just proposed now, has a provision in it that the carrier doesn't have to be somebody who's given birth before, right? So that's a very bad idea. Number one, we don't know that person's uterine history. So we don't know if something bad could happen to them during delivery. Could they stroke out? Could they have a heart attack? We have no response to their body in pregnancy. We don't even know if they can get pregnant. Second, psychologically, there's a lot of hormonal changes during pregnancy. We don't know how it's going to affect them, if they're going to be able to relinquish the baby. It is a certain mindset and only a certain person can serve as a carrier. So sometimes the lack of knowledge on part of the senators makes the legislation poor. So that is also something that's going to evolve. And something else that's going to evolve is the ethics of the society, right? So your your ethics take on maybe, right? So maybe in the 1800s, people saw nothing wrong with segregating Jewish people, keeping slaves, not allowing gay marriage. That was the ethics of the times, right? Now, if you bring that up at this point, our ethics have changed, right? Every we We certainly don't believe in having slaves or segregating people based on religion, or I'm sure some people don't believe in gay marriage, but in general, that's the uptick to allow different types of families and and be more tolerant. So things that are in the le- that are not in the legislation now that I see coming up as trends that are going to be problems are things like there's no age limit, right? So technically, you can make anybody pregnant, right? An 80 year old woman can have a baby. You can prep her uterine lining with progesterone and other drugs and Lupron and take her out of menopause and she can give birth. She might die of a heart attack, but she can carry a baby. In fact, in India, I I believe somebody in their 70s did give birth. So that's not usually in the legislation. But at what point are we going to say, okay, the moral standing of our country doesn't allow people to become pregnant after X. Are there any states with age limits right now? No. Why do you suppose that is? Is it simply because the politicians don't have the appetite to discuss it, or is it because that no one is recommending it? No, doctors doctors set their own limits normally based on medical data of what is safe, right? So over a certain age, but those limits have been stretched. So when I first started, you would never see somebody forty eight years old carrying a baby. That would be very, very, very rare, okay? Now, that's very common, right? It's very common for people in their late 40s to use an egg donor and have a baby. And that's even going up. You see even people in their early 50s, right? You see uh, Nancy Grace, I believe, on TV, right? Didn't she give birth in her 50s? And and you see people doing that. So the age limit is getting higher as life expectancy is getting higher, as medical technology is getting higher. So I think physicians and politicians, it's a very controversial subject, right? So they stay away from it. The other issue is, at least in my view, that hasn't hit the political arena at all, is how old is too old to parent, right? So let's say that you are 65 and single and you own a $100 million company. And basically you worked your entire life and there was nothing else but your work. And now all of a sudden you hit 65, you sell your company and you are, oh my God, what am I going to do with all my money? And I have no children. I have no legacy. And then you just wake up 
out of your 65 year fog and say, I want a baby. You're a single man, your sperm is fine. You've got a hundred million dollars. You find an egg donor and a surrogate, which is completely legal and you have a baby and you live to 85 and everything's fine. Now, what about if you're 70? What about if you're 75? What about if you're 80? At what point does it become that the interests of the child become more important? Our country is a very people's rights, self, what you want is allowed, right? We are not communists. We do not believe individual rights are paramount over the good of the whole, right? In, in this country. So at what point do we say, no, our individual right to have a baby at 85 is not appropriate, right? So right now it's practices policing. It's doctors setting the rules. And is that appropriate? Like each clinic is gonna have a different view. And is that what we want for our society, right? For each doctor to be able to make those rules or if you were a betting person, do you think that it would take a high profile case like the one in India to happen in the United States in order for that legal conversation to take place at the lawmaking level? Yes. What might happen is some 85 year old might go to the Ukraine where basically surrogacy is legal, but it's a developing country. Right. So money will speak. And they will find an agency to have a carrier for them and they will come back and they will die of a heart attack in the airport and the twins will be left parentless. And if it makes the news, that's when you're going to start to see regulation. And so age limit is one. What other ethical quagmires do you see having to be addressed in the law? So you see foreigner surrogacies. So People from foreign countries, most notably China at the present moment, come over to the United States and they do one of two things. They have no reason for using a carrier except that they want a boy and sex selection is not legal in China. They want a U.S. citizen baby and their wife doesn't want to carry the baby. So there's no medical reason and they're just coming here mainly to get a boy that's a U.S. citizen because U.S. citizens have a certain advantage and it's a lot harder for Chinese to get extenuating visas and citizenship than it was in the past. We are limiting the amount of investment coming in. And one of the ways to do that is to have a baby here through a surrogate. So they are also upping the cost of surrogacy because a lot of China has a lot of people and they have a lot of wealthy people now because their economy is up and coming. So they can pay a lot more than the average U.S. person. So the compensation to the surrogates is going up. So that's one big issue. The second big issue with foreign surrogacy is there are certain. Now, this is not, I think, widespread, but there are certain practices that are we would not consider ethical. So, for instance, you have a couple in China who has decided that they want seven sons. So they don't want to go to one agency because one agency is not going to make them seven sons, right? So there's different theories why they want so many. Maybe they it's, look they want a lot of children to work in their companies. Maybe they're selling the babies, whatever they're doing. But there are over 100 surrogacy agencies in the United States. So they come to my agency, let's say, because I have a and they hire me 
with perfectly reasonable criteria and nice reasons and they're polite to have one baby. And then they go to an agency in Massachusetts and do the same thing. And they go to an agency in Florida and an agency in Nevada. And then all of a sudden you discover that these people are having babies all over the place all at the same time. And you don't really understand why. And there's just risks involved in that. Is there, is there nothing in place where the attorney in Maryland would know that this is also happening in Florida? Is there, other than disclosure from the client, is there any way that they would be able to? There's almost no way because of client confidentiality, right? The only way that you find out is sometimes because the field is small right now of reproductive lawyers, if I end up representing the couple and then their surrogate calls me for advice from another company, not knowing that I also have them as a regular client. And that happens sometimes. And so who's in charge of advising states as these laws are updated and introduced? Is the Society for Reproductive Attorneys consult with legislators as this is happening? Are REIs involved? Who helps lawmakers update these laws as we start to have a different ethical understanding than we did in the past? Well, they do seek a lot of advice, but these kind of things are well beyond the advice that they seek, right? Their first step is just getting the fact, like who's the parent, what's enforceable on the books, because that hasn't been, these are second layer of legislation and nobody has gotten there yet, right? Because it's really only been in the last five to seven years that you've been seeing these problems especially the problems with China, because that started when China lifted the one-child policy a couple of years ago, and then also when Trump came into office and made it much harder for China to make investment over here, right? So things change really quickly, and they're going to change again now with uh, gene editing and the ability to, to do certain things to embryos that you never were allowed to do before which is going to become another problem. Can you pick your child's intelligence? Can you pick, you know, it's one thing. Lawmakers think it's one thing to edit out for disease, right? So if you have an embryo and we don't have this ability yet, but the embryo has cystic fibrosis and you can somehow manipulate that embryo so that it doesn't have cystic fibrosis, right? That's gene editing. But could you manipulate that embryo so it has blonde hair, blue eyes. It can become the next Michael Phelps because you can, you know, change the wingspan of their arms to be, you know, in proportion. Or can you make perfect pitch so you have another Beyonce? That's going to be the next wave. So right now, is the society, like, for example, was the Society for Reproductive Attorneys involved in advising the New York law? I know ASRM and Resolve are really involved when Yes, a lot. I mean, I there are a lot of lawyers from that organization involved, but there's a lot of competing interests. And in politics, there's a lot of compromise. And you certainly if you bring up these very contentious issues, if you are pro reproductive law and you bring up all these unusual, but what some would call hurtful scenarios in a legislative session, you're not getting anything through. Nobody is going to allow your legislation through if you start pointing out everything bad that could happen. 
that would not be in my best interest or in the reproductive world's best interest. And that is why doctors hate lawyers, right? Because if you talk to any given lawyer for long enough, there's always a reason not to do something. Well, yes. I mean, there's a difference between proper lawyering, right? And risk aversion, right? So right now, while I'm talking to you, my building could blow up, right? That's probably the same chance that like, seven different DNAs is going to be found in one person's womb, right? So you have to look at the relative risk versus the benefit, right? So if all you do is weigh risk every day, there are people that are risk adverse, right? They never do anything because they just, so it depends on, you know, what your level of risk aversion is. Uh, Well, this is why I wanted to have you on this show, Melissa, because this is so fascinating to me and to the audience, because there's always more to peel back, not just of what has happened with legal precedent, but what's currently happening with new laws on the books and what will come in the future as we as a society debate and decide on these ethics. What haven't I asked you about, about third-party law or about law concerning assisted reproductive technology, whether it's for patients or providers that you would want to want our listening audience to know? Well, I think really for practice, the most important thing is make sure you have consents that are reviewed by a lawyer. Make sure that if it's third party, there's a contract and a lawyer on both sides. Make sure you have mental health involved and just make sure that you are checking with all the other professionals. And the biggest thing is leave your feelings out of your legal, which is really hard, right? So. The biggest cases come from the doctors trying to be nice against their better judgment, right? So you feel bad for X, Y, and Z because she's been there for 10 years. Treat her the same in terms of what you're willing to do for a procedure as the person who just walks in today, right? That doesn't mean you don't spend more time with her, that maybe, you know, you give her a graduated discount over time. But if you wouldn't do the procedure on X person, you shouldn't do it on Y just because you feel bad. Because that feelings always get you in trouble. That is sage wisdom and one that I could see being replicated. Melissa Brisman, thank you so much for coming on to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.